0: Good evening, you're listening to Three Moves Ahead, and I'm your host, Rob Zachney, here with Three Moves Ahead founder, Troy Goodfellow. Hello, hello. Today, we also welcome Kotaku's Luke Plunkett. Hey, everybody. And today, we are talking about 2x2 two two and apparently Crow Teams uh, Unity of Command 2, a sequel to Unity of Command. Uh, An Eastern Front war game that we all loved a few years back and we thought was really sort of a new benchmark in what a more approachable entry-level war game could be. Uh, Troy, what is Unity of Command, in a word, for people just sort of picking the series up? And then how does Unity of Command already depart from what we thought thought the formula was?
1: Unity of Command is a turn-based war game, set in World War II. Uh the major concept uh in both games generally is supply. Uh if you can cut off a unit supply in a couple of turns, they will become little puppy dogs and you can smush them uh pretty easily because, you know, Nazis like to link puppy dogs. Uh it is as you say it is a very simple war game it is relatively easy to pick up uh though it's actually quite difficult uh even in Unity of Command 1 many of the scenarios were quite hard uh because they require a very strong understanding of the map, an understanding of space, an understanding of movement. Units have uh little pips uh that reflect their strength. Uh as you deplete these, the units get destroyed. Um they get they can also be weakened uh, through other means, especially through cutting off their supply. Um, Unity of Command 2 takes a lot of major departures uh, from Unity of Command 1. Well, the, the, the big one is that, well, first of the, the setting. Moving it from uh, the Eastern Front to the Western Front means that we're not dealing with wide-open steps with great big armor movements. We're dealing with often very compact, tight uh, battlefields uh, with lots of cities, uh, lots of bridges to cut off, um, and in Tunisia and Italy, lots of hills and mountains that inhibit movement. Uh, Unity of Command 2 also introduces a lot of other concepts. Instead of simply banging your units into each other, like in Unity of Command 1, to try to weaken them or to make it some great, uh, rush for an encirclement, units have, uh, special types of attacks, which aren't used to deplete enemy strength necessarily, but to weaken their position or weaken their preparedness to bre- to breach through uh, entrenchments, to do feint attacks, to cast them off guard, which can increase the odds for the next real attack you will be doing. So it moves from a game, Unity of Command 1, which I think is probably what I would have thought was the best war game of the last 10 years, quite easily, uh, was largely puzzle-based in many ways. There's generally one best solution or one best early approach. Unity of Command 2 throws that off entirely because there are so many ways to weaken opponents. The battlefield is so much more cramped uh, and really front-loaded. It's not that you don't have great movements. I want to talk a little bit later about the Antwerp map, which I think is just absolutely fantastic and throws this, shows the this system at its best. It becomes a game of... Choosing your spot, exploiting openings, and not outrunning uh, your own advantages, uh, especially your own supply. Because it's quite easy to get yourself sucked into a problem of your own creation. Uh, in the Q&A podcast uh, for Patreon people last week, Rob, we talked about Patton uh, outrunning his gas. I did that at Antwerp, and it was not a pretty sight.
0: Uh, now, Luke, I caught your review uh over on Kotaku, and one of the things that jumped out at me was it's always sort of it's always sort of remarkable because I'm very vain to find that like people reach different conclusions than I do. Uh, and so when you sort of opened your review by talking about how Unity of Command One kind of left you cold, um, I was sort of caught out a bit by that because. In the conversations I was having when it came out, uh, it was pretty universally beloved, and I don't think I ever really heard any sort of counter-argument or counterpoint to, eh, here's ways that like Unity of Command 1 might leave someone feeling a bit at odds with it, uh, why it might be a slightly uncomfortable game. And because of that, perhaps... You ended up getting on really well with Unity of Command 2 out of the gate, which was the opposite arc I was on because I was coming from a game that I thought, oh, that's perfect. No, impro- no, no improving on that. And then I, w- then I encountered differences and was immediately hostile to them. So I'm curious with your, your arc here, what was it about Unity of Command 1 that kept you at arm's length? And
2: what did Unity of Command 2 do to kind of address that? I think Troy's already touched on it. I think the the sort of puzzle game aspect of the first Unity of Command, um, I don't know if you read went back and saw I, I reviewed the first game as well, and I, I was quite surprised at the sort of reading that first review that I was incredibly positive about the first game. Um I do I did and do really like it, but what happened with the first Unity of Command was that it kind of started to get a bit cold on me the more I played it. Um I just found it to be an incredibly it, it leaned very heavily on the idea of the logistics and supply, which was amazing. It made it really sort of stand out. It made that a really cool hook, but I didn't find much more to enjoy in the game outside of that. I found it a very sort of sterile, not one-dimensional, That's a bit unfair, but there, there wasn't too much to, to sort of keep bringing me back to that game once I'd sort of said, yeah, this logistics is cool, but a lot of these maps are very similar. A lot of, a lot of the strategies I'm using are very similar. Um I was also at the same time playing, and I guess I have been nonstop ever since they came out, playing uh, Panzer Corps and Order of Battle at the same time, Mm -hmm. and I guess maybe that played a part in it too, as I kept looking at those games thinking, yeah, those games have a lot in common with this, but they also sort of are a little bit more deeper at the strategic level. They string their campaigns together a bit more immersively, that there's a bit more sort of leading me through... a." Uh, battles and then entire wars with those games than there is in, in Unity of Command, and so when I saw Unity of Command two, which was basically like like you said, I've sort of gone through the opposite um, range of emotions. It's it was everything that I wanted the first game to be. It was it was adding a bit more depth to the combat rather than just simply having units throw at each other it was making the supply a little bit more than just a sort of straight up abstract puzzle experience by giving us that sort of hands-on control of it um it was adding that that strategic depth of carrying units over between the missions and being able to bolt on the extra units to them and and stuff like that so yeah i i guess i've gone through the opposite process that you did Mm -hmm. but i guess we're all in the same spot at the end (laughs) where where we all really like sort of what's come out at the end of this game
0: yeah i think one of the things that my my interpretation as i started playing more of this game the thing that started to bring me around to it i suppose is that to me unity of command 2 it feels like there's two needs uh that its design is is really serving one is that you cannot simply port the design and mechanics of an Eastern Front War game over to the Western theater and expect that all to feel right. Uh, and and it, to me, this very much feels like a game that concedes that it's going to have to make some significant changes to the way it works and the way you go about solving its scenarios, uh, solving its dilemmas. Because the things you did in the first game, if they worked here, it would probably feel weird. Uh, th- th- that is just not the nature of these campaigns you're fighting. The second thing that I felt that this design is serving in a lot of places is that is that puzzle-like aspect. That Unity of Command 1 was very much a game of... Set scenarios that you could complete a number of ways, but as you played them, you realized there was a there was an optimal time right that there, there were time scenarios there was a high score that you could chase there was a correct solution to these scenarios, and a lot of replaying unity of command was trying to find the right scenario and ev- r- the right solution and then eventually once you'd basically hit on what the right idea was there was a bit of re-rolling to get better outcomes like there were definitely a couple scenarios where if I did not get an overrun attack with a tank unit on the first turn there was no point in continuing because that attack needs to be an overrun for me to get the score I want to complete the scenario I don't know if unity of command 2 totally solves that problem I would have to you know that's something I realized about Unity unity of command well over a year after it came out. Um, but a lot of Unity of Command too, and I'm curious what, what y'all make of this, it feels like a game that is trying to push back that moment where you're just re-rolling and re-racking and trying to solve the scenarios. It feels like it's a game designed to create more of a possibility space and more of a space for you to try different approaches and maybe even create multiple avenues to victory.
1: Yeah, I mean, I absolutely think there's a game that has. Uh, I mean, I've tried like a, I haven't played a whole lot of the campaign. I've been focusing on the scenario design, which I think has been like really, really interesting. But even like the very first battle you play uh, in Tunisia, uh, there are a couple of your objectives. Gives you the objectives you have to reach. There's two major objectives, two minor objectives. If you don't get your objectives and you of command one, I mean, you get a really bad score in the campaign. In Unity of Command 2, you can flub on a couple of minor objectives. You don't get a huge score, but you get to move forward and you get a few perks. It doesn't say, okay, well, you didn't get everything, so you got to go back. Uh, you have to go back to the start of the war. I'm sorry, rookie. you got to fight this battle over and over again until you get it right. Um, so you can go back and replay it and think, okay, I want to try to get these three objectives. Or you Where are you, you going to focus on your map? Where are you going to do your push uh, in the opening Tunisia map, map uh Generally, your, one of your strongest pushes is going to be up from the south because you need to. that's where the bulk of your armor is, uh, but it's a very tight spot. So it's saying, okay, can I couple this with a push through the western gap? And which western gap? Uh, do I swing this armor around? There are all of these different ways of winning that battle. And you are in a race. You can't keep doing it. And you are in a race against yourself. But it doesn't feel like necessarily one way is going to always be better. Uh, you can get some really unlucky rolls, but a, really a lot of it comes down to choosing when you're going to use your special cards. There are bonus cards you can use. They were just like in Unity of uh, Command One, you could uh launch sometimes we're given airstrikes or uh reinforcements and those carry on to Unity of Command Two. But you're also given uh in the campaign uh, a deck of cards. Um and these are often, you know, one off powers you can use. Sometimes they're multiple use, but often they're one off, uh, magic cards you can use. And when you choose to deploy them, uh, in a battle, can be very powerful. Do you want to use that B17 strike now? <laughs> to weaken up uh, that obvious uh, front? Or do you want to save it to crack a city open uh, later on in the battle? You don't know what's going on. You've got to send your recon planes out. And there's so it, it, it certainly does reward replaying, but you're replaying for different reasons. You're not replaying to, well, I didn't get my overrun so there's no point in playing it anymore. Because there are a lot of ways you can recover from that uh, through... Just lucky rolls through smart use of tactics, you can you can lose a unit and still do quite well, which you really couldn't do a whole lot in Unity of Command One. it's uh, so, it's rewards replaying to make yourself make yourself a better player, not to solve the puzzle better. If that makes any sense.
0: No, it it, it does, and I I think that is very much to the game's uh, strength. I think it seems to be a common pitfall of a lot of the entry level war games that. To an extent, all of this might be too broad, maybe it's unfair, but to an extent, after a point, almost all of them begin feeling like puzzle games uh, in, in terms of the way they're constructed and the way that they sort of have I, like an ideal solution they're fishing around for. I think Unity of Command 2, with those things like, okay, like you get cards that you can spend at various points that have very special abilities that do not renew that like this is if you are playing a card to basically lo- use one of your supers for a campaign or or a scenario uh how you use that and the moment in which you use it is pretty important and in the campaign how those are distributed is like a little bit randomized as well so that one campaign you might open with a set of four different supers that are completely different from how your next campaign would open. And what is the better play there? What is the, what is the better hand to have? That requires a lot of testing and dis- discovery. And I like that this game makes room for that. Now, initially, I did not. Initially, I think I was really frustrated by, to me, it felt like so much in Unity of Command 2 is creating little buttons or little mechanics for things that were sort of baked into the design of Unity of Command 1. For instance, um, really basic example here. So one of the most important things in Unity of Command 2 is suppression attacks, basically artillery bombardments, right? And in the first game, that was still basically there. If a unit had an artillery specialty uh, specialist step, because they have their strength points, and then they have little specialist units that provide modifiers. If a unit had the specialist step for artillery, it would open an attack by doing an artillery attack, and you had a good chance of having it breach enemy defenses uh, and remove their entrenchment advantage, etc. But there was no button that said oh, do prep fire, do a pre, pre-attack pre bombardment. That was just sort of assumed that your units weren't going to be dumb and they would, in fact, use the artillery. In Unity of Command 2, now there's that button where you don't have to send that unit into the attack. You can just use the artillery to suppress enemy defenses and, and maybe reduce its entrenchment level. And at first, I really didn't like stuff like that. I didn't like like, I didn't understand why was that there. I didn't fully get why these these cards were floating around. And over time, I started to realize how many more little choices were in play each turn than there were in Unity of Command 1, and they weren't meaningless choices either. They were things that I actually had to think about. Did I want to, because of these special abilities are all tied to how many command points an HQ has. Did I want to spend those HQ points on an artillery attack here and preserve one of my units, or did I need to hang on to them because there were units out of supply and I needed to reserve like three command points to have a shipment of fuel and ammo rushed to one of my forward units because otherwise there's going to be trouble. And once I realized all... All of that was in play. All of that was was sort of in tension with each other and needed to be weighed against each other. The game kind of started to click for me and I started to really love it.
2: Yeah, I went through a similar process with, with those attacks where initially I thought, oh, this is a lot of, although it's a lot of busy work, I'm hoping yeah. to do to lay the ground for what used to be a really simple attack. And I didn't like how it was limited as well to the range of the HQ. I was like, if this unit has artillery attached to it, why do I need this arbitrary thing in range of it if I'm going to use this attack? Surely I can just do this anyway. And it was really bugging me. But as I went through the campaign and and went back and revisited some of the scenarios as well, I actually started finding that giving me that level of granular control over, especially during the Italian part of the campaign, where you're on a lot of narrow maps and there's a lot of heavily fortified uh, German positions. I actually found that it was doing this really cool thing where in a lot of games like this, you... Tend to find that you have a sort of spearhead and you have a sort of focal point where you're attacking. And then you, you tend to have one or two sort of auxiliary movements that end up just sort of g- going nowhere. They're just securing some supply or some bonus objectives. And, and if, if you're playing a sort of 10, 15, 20 turn map on these kind of games, you end up finding that you, you've got a core sort of unit and a core sort of. Grouping that, that's really pushing towards primary objectives. And then you've got a lot of fluff around the edges. And it's a lot of really sort of meaningless movement and combat happening around the fringe. I started finding that that kind of granular control over, over attacking and suppressing and, and those kind of things. And, uh, the river crossings as well later on, how you can unlock that in the campaign and actually sort of unlock the ability to have those forced river crossings. It was making every single move from every single unit feel like something I had to consider. Like I wasn't just, rushing through with some units and then just sort of blowing through the other with, with dead time. I was actually every single turn, every single unit, everything they did, I was like, hmm, is this the best way to do this? Is this something that I that I want to be doing now? And I found that really, really cool because I can't think of another game like this where I've been that involved start to finish in, in every single turn that I've done.
0: Troy, you mentioned you didn't you didn't get too much into the campaigns. Uh you mostly did scenarios. <laughs>
1: Yeah, and I started the campaign and moved there just to understand how it worked, but I really didn't have a whole lot of time to invest in pushing all through uh, the campaign and give it a lot of attention.
0: So I just let, let me evangelize the campaigns to you. Yeah, because uh, right I mean, you, you,
1: your, your review really went into it, and you and Luke seemed to have had a really good time with it
0: yeah i I think it, it was another one of those things where I didn't understand how much was possible within the structure of that campaign until I started really so you're awarded all these prestige points, right that you can base they're your currency and they allow you to uh you know those cards we referred to in uh, during the campaign uh, at each conference between each chapter of the campaign, you can you you are dealt a hand of cards, but you still have to pay prestige points to put them into your active hand otherwise you lose them. So you you have to buy the cards whether or not you end up using them is another matter but just to have the option you need to put money down. Um but then also before scenarios you have the option of uh you know buying reinforcement points for units that have become depleted through fighting. Uh you can buy specialist steps to give some important units a real extra wallop in combat that they might not otherwise have. Um, and then, of course, you know, as, as Luke alluded to, you can buy these HQ upgrades that allow you to do things like have these uh, forced river crossings, etc., or extend the command range of HQs. And one of the cool things that happened to me in my campaign was that I, I love the Italy scenarios in this game. Uh like they were Italy is not a a front that I see a lot of games tackle. Uh I think because of some of the reasons I'm about to outline, it is a really frustrating front. It is basically trench warfare, but the trenches are mountains. Uh it's it's just an absolute nightmare. And there's a series of of scenarios where you're where you're driving up the Italian peninsula and I finally hit brick wall um i i think this was like trying to breach the uh the the gustav line or or something it was basically like winter uh before winter of 1944 43 44 and i could not do it i could not do it in time as i was trying to make advances german counterattacks were just destroying my troops and i must have failed the scenario two three times before i finally got fed up and uh opened up the bank, and put a ton of money into reinforcing my army in Italy. Uh, I had hundreds of prestige points. I think I, I I basically emptied the bank account buying things like engineer specialists to help me punch through uh, German fortifications because they were dug in everywhere. Suddenly, everybody had artillery. If you're an armored unit, you've got mobile artillery. doesn't matter. Everyone... Everyone brings artillery. Everyone has as many specialists as possible. Uh, the, the, arm, the Allied Army in Italy became really badass, and that scenario became much, much easier. Uh, with those extra reinforcements, we kicked a lot of German ass. It was very cool. I was like, great. That was good use of points. That was the last scenario of that, that chapter. The next scenario begins, it's Overlord. Here I am faced with four new headquarters. All the other headquarters I've been dealing with um, were army HQs that basically stretched back to Africa. Uh, I think like British Second Army i had been using forever, so it was heavily upgraded. Here I had four new armies with no upgrades on them. And I had no points to provide upgrades. And so I went into Overlord with basically the least amount of preparation upgrades you could possibly have in this game. And it was just a shit show, uh, a complete nightmare. Because the things that I was I had taken for granted in Italy, because my my HQs were so experienced, because I'd spent all these points on my Italian armies. Suddenly, it was like going back to square one for Normandy, and I realized I had completely bottlenecked myself. I was able to get through Overlord, but I couldn't do most of the things I really needed to. Uh, you know. Bridge Every river where necessary with pontoon bridges. I just, you know, my units were my, my HQs were hobbled units were constantly losing contact with their uh, with their headquarters. And I ended up just like paying this huge butcher's bill in Normandy, it was a really near run thing. But it made me realize that like, there's this conservation of momentum in some ways that you have to sort of manage across the campaigns. And you really have to think about how much are you willing to commit to this one campaign, to this one battle, versus how much do you just need to hedge your bets? And, like, you know, you can get an ugly win here, and that's fine, but at least it'll be a win, because you will need the points to get another army off the ground. And I thought
1: that was really cool. Yeah, I want to ask you this, uh, kind of a a, a probing question. Comparing this to, say, Panzer Corps Panzer General— one of our complaints about those games is often by the late game, you'll find if you didn't level up the right kinds of units, didn't have the right kind of army, you can find it with a puzzle that you just can't beat because they've set it up for you to have promoted the right kinds of units, you have the right kind of build of veteran units. And for you and I, this is kind of a problem in the Panzer Corps model. It was a big issue for us. Here you have, you say, oh, I went from Italy to Normandy and everything was broken. Everything was wrong. But your response was different.
0: Yeah, I. Uh, I think part of it is. Um,
1: I'm not saying the two games are the same. I think. Yeah. I think they're doing something different. But your reaction to oh, I'm being held up in this campaign isn't. Well, this is bullshit. It's oh, yeah. here's a new new here's a whole new thing for me to do, and it sucks, and it's all my fault, and I, I feel mean, I, personally responsible instead of oh, the game just screwed me by design.
2: I yeah. think the unit variety helps here. Mm-hmm. I think. I think games like Panzer Corps, where they break individual types, of work, like how artillery is a standalone unit and how mechanized infantry is a, is a standalone unit that you sort of equip as you go. I think Unity of Command really only having infantry and armor and then allowing you to, to transfer things between – I can't remember whether this is a default thing or something you unlock later, but being able to transfer things between units um, – On the fly, sort of, really negates a lot of that frustration because you've really only got those two types of units, Um, and and that's all you need to solve most problems. So rather than sort of the the panzercore issue of okay, I got too many heavy tanks or not enough artillery or I've got a lot of good infantry but not enough mechanized transportation for them. I never found through the campaign that I ran into a problem like that because I simply just had experienced infantry and experienced armor. And if I needed a particular uh, perk or add-on like the the engineering units or artillery units, I could swap between them and sort of set those up. But I never felt like, oh, God, I shouldn't have brought this unit or I wish I'd made that Sherman more powerful than this division or, or whatever. I think it was – I think making it a lot – more simplistic in terms of unit makeup also made it a lot more flexible as I went through the campaign in that regard. I think that's a really good point.
0: This is not a game of hard counters. Um, and the Panzer General and its descendants, uh, that model is very much about hard counters. And so if you don't have, uh, scissors and the enemy shows up with rock, you are in deep trouble because the efficient, like the, the efficiency just isn't going to exist. Uh, I think to that, I would also say, like, so I arrived in Normandy, and was I screwed? No. But I had to play a lot tighter than I'd been playing in the last few scenarios. Like, the last few scenarios, I had seasoned armies. And then that last scenario in Italy, once I sort of lost my temper and just decided to brute force it and just basically create an army of heavyweights uh, to just beat the living hell out out of the Germans... It was not it was not a true like I did not like pay to win that scenario, right? I didn't buy my way out of it it was still it was still tough. I still had to think about like how I was going to make all that work, but I was able to take risks and force things through in places where I might not have been able to uh but then when I got to Normandy, I had everything I needed to make a success of it. I still had a good army I was still able to complete the scenario but it just required playing so much tighter. I hadn't had to worry about command radiuses of HQ. Uh, I hadn't worried about that in a few scenarios because both the, both armies in Italy and the distances in Italy uh, were constrained enough that basically both HQs could talk to all their units almost all the time. Once I got to Normandy, the first time I realized like, oh, this Canadian army has a command radius of like three spaces, and they have some really valuable armor units that I needed to punch through the road to San Low, for instance. But the minute they like took one step off the main road and through German lines, they couldn't talk to their HQ, and there was simply not enough space on the map for me to deploy those HQs safely. To forward position. So the the way to think of it is, command radius is like it's basically following the same rules as movement for the HQ. And so, like the command radius flows along lines of communication more easily than it does across broken ground. So an HQ will have an extended command radius along roads. But then, if you have units from that same HQ sort of going going cross country across bad ground, uh, that command radius falls off faster. And so what was happening to me in Normandy is that suddenly I was constantly having to reposition HQs and constantly having to think about, you know, okay, I have an armored spearhead here that I've cobbled together from the American Army, from the British Army, and the Canadian Army. That's three tank divisions, all reporting in different HQs, and every single time they achieve a breakthrough, at least one probably two and sometimes all three will drive straight out of the command radius. And I could have solved that problem. If, if I'd reserved the points to upgrade the command radius of the HQs, I wouldn't have had to worry about that quite as much. It still would have been an issue, but here it created this just completely new constraint. And it was kind of a satisfying problem to solve because it wasn't, it, it wasn't disabling. It just meant that I couldn't run sort of the dream blitzkrieg, right? Instead, it was much more of a – a lot more like what Normandy was, right? Sort of a attritional, like, chip away, local breakthrough, pause, regather your forces, move the HQs forward,
2: and then resume. That's what that whole scenario was. It was a nightmare, but I loved it. Yeah, I really like the way that every time it does impose a fresh challenge or limitation like that, it feels thematic. Like of course you've spent all your money upgrading your units that have fought through North Africa and Italy because those guys have been have been already fighting for for a, a long amount of time. A lot of these fresh troops landing in in June 1944 don't have that experience, so of course they're not going to have the same. Uh, command radius and and other ways that the game sort of going kind to of simulate experience and and ability on on the battlefield and, and that sort of stuff. And supply works the same way too in Normandy as I got used to in Italy, yes. always having supply be so close and and short range and when I got to the larger maps in in France and started blowing out and trying to pull these, you know, amazing Um, I'm like, oh, yes, wide open spaces. I'm going to roll the tanks out. And then three turns later, all my tanks are all paralyzed because I've completely forgotten to move my supply because the game's imposed a supply limitation, which I originally thought, oh, that's some bullshit. But then you realize, well, no, of course it is because we've only just landed on the beaches of Normandy. I'm not going to have a fully operating supply line coming in yet. I need to wait for... The however many turns and missions it's going to take before the supply. I think it's 50%. I think the first few missions are where they just completely cut your supply in half, and that's something you have to work with. But then that's something that they actually did have to work with, so oh. it's an understandable limitation. It's a really cool thing to have to work around,
1: yeah. I mean, the, the, the map design, I mean, compared to the map design in, in the Union of Command One, which I thought this, I thought the maps had probably quite a bit of variety in, so in general layout, but. You know, where the rivers were, where the cities were, did have quite an impact. But here, the map variety really does change so much. Um, I want to talk about the Antwerp map. Because I think it's one of my favorites, not just because the Canadians are important in it, though that's certainly kind of a big thing for me. Um, it's, you have, uh, some of the map is, uh, uh, north, west and northwest of Paris and then sweeping up and to Antwerp in the Low Countries. And really the only good way, smooth way, to get up into uh, Belgium is through Paris. Uh, but a lot of your army is stuck up fighting on the rivers uh, to the northwest of it. And you can't move everybody through Paris because that will exhaust your supply. And the Germans suck you into this trap where they, they keep pulling back. And I'm not sure if this is a scripted thing or if it's the AI just being relatively smart to get back with that ant supply stuff. Because you can, you can run in. I'm running in and I'm taking Nazi supply depots and I'm having a grand old time. Um, but my headquarters aren't being moved up fast enough, uh, to take it. So I want to take advantage of this wide open space because I have the one river crossing that's secure through Paris. Meanwhile, my tanks and infantry are fighting it up, uh, trying to get pontoon bridges everywhere else. It is so satisfying to find myself outdone by my own stupidity, uh, just having armored divisions completely stranded halfway to Antwerp, just stuck there. Uh, the Germans aren't necessarily killing them yet, but they're, you know, getting ready to. You can see them doing the preparing and realizing that this was just um, poor tactical choices that threw attention to the headquarters, which is a lesson that I learned. It took way too long to learn the headquarter lesson, uh, just how important they were. The tutorial is not really great on that. But they're so essential to uh, survival through to troop management uh, and you know, leveling up headquarters, of course, in the campaign. That just seeing that whole map come together with some units just completely stuck, unable. because is a big supply depot. I got to take uh, on the coast, and I can't cross the river. I got to get pontoon bridges down to cross it, but there's only a couple of narrow crossings I can use. It's just a pain in the ass. And meanwhile, everybody who can run free uh, in the wilderness is starving to death because I can't get them food or gas. And it just shows first. I would suck as a general. Uh, and second, how even on the same map, you can have widely different experiences. Uh, the combat can be very different in one part of the map compared to another. I mean, the, I think the Overlord map is another example where, just like historically, some of the beach landings will go very, very smoothly, and some of them absolutely will not. And they'll be held up, and you're being told that you've got to get to— that city in so many turns, otherwise you don't get that objective. And it's like, I'm trying, dude, uh, but there are just too many Germans in the way. And it's just a really, really well done use of first, the historical theming is appropriate and uh, the scenario design and just the use of uh, t- terrain and rivers and bridges. I think this is probably, I, I compare this to, like, we did a book podcast a while ago on Gary Grigsby's War in the West and compared it to War in the East. War in the East we like, War in the West we didn't, because War in the West felt like War in the East, and it's not supposed to. They're supposed to feel like very different theaters, and they didn't. This feels like a very different theater than Unity of Command 1, and it is really, really outstanding.
0: Yeah, I think um, playing this game, it's very... (laughs) One of the things that I liked about it is this feeling that there's no hidden trick to a lot of these scenarios. And what I mean is you still have moments of discovery. There's still a lot of moments where you realize, like, aha, that's how I can take that position. Or, oh, I can cut the enemy supply lines here and just roll them up if I just wait a couple turns. Uh, Like, you still have those moments of discovery. But what there isn't is the sense that As there often was in Unity of Command 1, this notion that, oh, you just need to, like, blow a hole open here, and then race a couple armored divisions here and here, and voila, you've completely cut supplies to vast numbers of Soviet troops, and you can just kind of roll them up and whittle them down at will from there, uh you know, very elegant, very surgical, very tidy. Uh, and it makes you feel like a, a freaking genius that, you know, you could basically win without ever having a fair fight. This game very much feels like there's just no way around the sheer number of places that you're going to have to take damage where you're just going to have to burn through strength points and that's going to be how you improve your position you know your units will be shattered but you can make german divisions stop existing and that will create a gap in their lines and that's what needs to happen right now you know it isn't about efficiency you need there to be one fewer german division right now and however that's going to happen is how it's going to happen and what i kind of dig about that is Again, like in Unique 1, it could sometimes feel like if you were fighting, you were losing, right? If you weren't finding those, like, surgical cuts to bring the entire House of Cards crumbling, you were probably on the wrong track. You were screwing up. This feels very much like a game where, no, you kind of have to identify the point where you're just going to beat the hell out of them and stick to it and have some conviction there. Um... Another thing I learned really quickly in this game, curious if this if this sounds at all familiar, I learned to become very wary of ending my turn adjacent to German troops. Because if you Because the way artillery works is that specialist step requires pre-positioning. Artillery basically only works if it is adjacent to an enemy unit at the start of the turn really quickly I started to learn that while it was nice to have my artillery available to start attacks on German troops, I learned that frequently I was taking my worst beatings because at the end of my turn, I would sort of have all my troops nestled against German lines and they would just deliver a series of just like brutal beatings and then disappear. And I had to start like leaving a one to a one hex buffer uh, around key positions and if the Germans wanted to move into it and attack me from there go ahead but I could no longer afford to send my units in to those kinds of meat grinders and so it did mean those rare occasions when I did send one in and give sort of the no retreat order that was really that, that was a meaningful moment that was a that was a real risk I was taking but this game definitely sort of conditioned me to realize that like Unlike Unity Command 1, where you constantly had to watch out for the AI, just finding one little gap in your lines and doing to you what, they, what you were trying to do to them. This feels a bit more like the AI is just going to try to cripple you wherever possible. It knows it can't get your jugular. It knows it can't like kill you. But it, can, it, but it also knows that it can beat you up so badly you can't continue. And uh, that's what I started, like, guarding against.
1: Well, that's something I'm probably doing wrong then. (laughs) I I should probably just not be playing football with the Germans, is what you're telling me.
0: You have to be judicious, I would say.
1: (laughs) But some of the maps are so small. Oh, yeah. And Um, the
2: time limit's so strict as well that you feel like you can't like you need to you need to take those losses like i can't afford yeah. to not have my guys that close cuz that yeah. one or two hexes might be the difference between me taking that distant objective in time or not so i'm just going to have to eat shit here and let them take these losses because i would rather do that than risk that extra turn sort of costing me more dearly in the end of it especially around river crossings like if you forced a river
0: and you've got now you control both banks and you got a foothold uh It doesn't matter how many people have to die to hold those crossings and hold that bridge open. Yep. They just have to do it. Because you can't afford to spend another turn rebuilding that bridge and having units stacked up behind it uh, waiting to cross. You need to start expanding that bridgehead. Um, And the AI is just ruthless about blowing everything up.
1: Oh, yeah. And they'll just... oh To the point...
2: It's hilarious. (laughs) There are missions where you will spend like... oh. The, I was just playing last night the the final campaign mission, the, the sort of split one where you've got the rural pocket on the left and then you've got the sort of really expansive open green pastures on the right. And it was just this hilarious succession of me building six bridges and then it's the Germans' turn and none of them move, but all I can see in the distance is bridge blowing, bridge blowing, bridge blowing. He <laughs> would just blow them all up and then I'd rebuild them and they'd blow them up again. Just this constant... To and fro of bridges, just seven thousand bridges being built and destroyed over and over again every day.
1: I'm wondering how much of that is actually a wise move, though, because they've got to get supplies across those bridges too. They're very, they're very preemptive in their bridge of destruction. Yeah,
0: I'm curious how have you felt about the AI overall? Because we were having this discussion in the uh, in in three am 3M, three m a Discord, where people were observing really different things from the AI. To me, I'd felt like. So for me I was a little frustrated that at times it felt like the AI was maybe not looking for those really deadly counters uh that sometimes needs to, particularly in um So in Overlord, I would see the Germans had panzer divisions around uh Kahn, and they could have used them to basically crush that entire flank. And they wouldn't. And I was sort of thinking, well. The old Unity of Command AI definitely would have. Unity of Command 1 AI, if it has three Panzer divisions and sees a thinly held portion of line, it is coming through. Um, and so to me, I felt like, okay, is this AI maybe a little bit too much of a, uh, you know, fighting retreat AI? It's it, it doesn't even really look for opportunities to deliver those crushing counters uh, that do anything more than like, you know, deliver some, some losses. They don't look for sort of operational successes. Uh, but then a couple people I was talking to on the Discord were saying that in their playthroughs, the, uh, the AI launched exactly those kind of counters and in some cases was almost too aggressive and would overextend those panzers and get destroyed. And so, I would start like at, at least in the in the straw poll I had, it sounded like people were observing very different things from the AI, and I'm curious what you all observed about how the AI is tending to fight these
2: scenarios. I found that it really liked to bait me, set some traps, which I thought was was quite yeah. clever. Um, it would it would show me a weakness, and I would exploit that weakness massively with armor and infantry. And that would be the point where I'd find, Oh, hey, he's got four panzer units. I didn't even know they were there. (laughs) And they are now crushing me and then going through the hole that I just made myself. So instead of them sort of coming straight out, like you, like you were saying in Unity of Command one and just crushing straight through your lines, I, I found repeatedly that the AI would sort of hold its best units in reserve, wait for you to make a move and then counter and exploit that in, in reverse, especially on the, on the post Normandy. Maps. The Italy maps are kind of, it, it seems to just be only locked into to fighting, to, to be stuck in a fighting retreat, obviously, because of the design of the maps and the yeah. state of the campaign. But in, in Normandy, I found it was a lot more flexible with, with how it would come back at you.
1: It's really hard to judge the AI because the scenarios are so different. I have to play a lot of them many times. Um, sometimes it, it feels a little bit hollow uh, that it'll have like one good punch and then it's got a glass jaw from there on in. It won't, it'll make its first move, and if that fails, it will either just freeze up and not do a whole lot or it'll shuffle units around. Other times it will... Um, it's, it's it's very good at, re- at pulling back its units, very good at retreating weakened units and moving stronger units to the front. Um, and uh, Or if it has enough pips, strengthening units that should be strengthened, so it's quite good at recognizing its own weaknesses. Um, it's good. I think it's at, at, you know, the, the faint retreat. I'm not sure if that's an AI, if the traps are AI tricks or they are just having to pull back a weakened unit to where they have stronger units. And it's just us reading it. Oh, clever trap. Um, cause you know, it's, it's very human to read intent into those things. Uh, but I, I think that it does have. Just like the Unity of Command 1 AI, it's very, it it can notice a weakness and can exploit it. It's very good at finding a problem and making, finding a, a problem that I'm having and taking complete advantage of it. Uh, so a very obvious, uh, an obvious hole and exposed headquarters. Um, it's, it's quite good at that. Uh, the bridge thing, that's, you know, I think a tactical over, overdue, but it does make some sense I guess. It it won't leave it'll it'll make you waste your time. It it will often it will not move units from strong points. So mm-hmm. that's a good smart thing. It will it will not shuffle units out that have been entrenched. Uh so that's a good smart move at least. Um and certainly how important entrenchments are uh especially in the and Tunisia maps it's it's quite good. So I don't have a good feel for how the AI is. I wonder if it could be using any of its um artillery or airstrikes or anything better or wiser, sometimes it doesn't choose the target that I would choose, but that doesn't mean the AI is stupid. It means it has different goals than I do. Uh, Have any of you played as the Germans?
0: No, that's the one thing I haven't done. I know that there's uh, bulge maps uh, in in this as well.
1: I'm I'm curious. I mean, I, I don't play Nazis most of the time anyway. But uh, I am curious how this plays out from the German uh, experience. I mean, the campaign is just for the West, I think, right? Yeah. Yeah, because they're the ones making the progress. But the scenarios, um, I'm curious how, um, for example, Overlord works looks from a German perspective. Or if I were to do Antwerp, would I be blowing up – or Roar, would I be blowing up all the bridges? Um, can I stack enough units to slow everyone down uh, in Anzio? Um, I wonder. Uh, how this works from the German side, uh so if any listeners have any thoughts on that uh we'd love to hear that
0: um, i I think one other thing that I like here is uh speaking of sides and and perspectives um <laughs> something that I feel is maybe subtext here is this game's basically is definitely arguing the Commonwealth won that fucking war, right. <laughs> this this game is definitely making the case that, like, in scenario after scenario, the U.K. and Commonwealth forces are just wrestling with the biggest, nastiest parts of the German army. And then there's
2: just see, these... Th- th-
1: this, this just seems like history to me. <laughs> Historic life. This is how
2: it was. <laughs> yeah, scenario... I do not see a problem with it either, so I don't know, I don't know what the issue is. <laughs>
0: Oh, it's it's so funny. Just every scenario, I'm looking at these at these American rubes just shambling around beaches, and I'm like, "Move, get your asses in gear! Why can't you attack that position?" And meanwhile, like British armored divisions are just like shredding German mechanized units. Uh, it's very funny to me the way this game. And I think maybe it's actually a bit of, a a bit of zooming out and a bit of perspective here as well. So often this, the scale of this game is interesting. So often you're either dealing with huge, like theater wide maps, uh, like in war in the West or something like that, or you're dealing in with, you're dealing with slightly more zoomed in maps where American sectors in Normandy are their own battles, right? Like, San Lowe becomes its own battle. Carentan becomes its own battle. Uh, The drive up the Cherbourg Peninsula is its own campaign. All these things happen in isolation. And so in those, these are fierce fights, uh, Operation Cobra, that breakout, all these things happen. And they become specific stories about the American army's uh, sort of trial by fire in North Africa, in Italy, in Normandy. And the scale of this game often sort of drives home the sense that you have really experienced Commonwealth forces uh, whose job is basically to be the heavyweight, just like trading body blows. And then in some ways, like in a lot of cases, the American units are there to just be this like almost like waterfall that the Germans can't quite stem that it's not that they're that capable. It's just that they can go everywhere. And that just eventually by sort of filtering through German positions and like finding little like corners to nibble at, eventually they begin to cause the entire German uh, you know, structure to crumble. But it was it's just interesting to me playing these scenarios and realizing that I definitely, in the way I was playing them, I was starting to develop a a bias where if i had a really hard job i was sending the brits and and the commonwealth forces to go do it and if i just needed to send units through empty space or hold a quiet sector i was sort of saying well i can trust i can trust the american forces with that and uh after a point it began to feel like editorial probably
2: correct editorial
0: Sounds
2: good. Yeah, I hadn't – I had. <laughs> like I said, I, I hadn't considered that because I, I remember Panzer Corps and Panzer General being quite good with that too, how it didn't just have American and British, it would have Canadian and Polish and Free French and sort of subunits that it would represent like that too. But now that, I, now that I am thinking back on it, my clearly best units in this game were the British armoured and the elite British infantry, especially the paratroops yeah. that you get later on in the in the Normandy section of the campaign.
1: Yeah, the British armor are kind of my big punchers as well. I mean yeah. once you've
2: got a sort of six strength British armored unit that's got some experience in it, it's yeah, it's doing very nicely. I think I had an Indian
0: infantry brigade uh, division that had engineers and artillery, and they basically single handedly like won the eastern half
2: of the Italian peninsula. Yeah, I know those guys. Yeah, they were great. (laughs) Just time (laughs) again, it was like I think they come late too. I think they're one of the units that you don't deploy until a few turns into one of those missions as well. And once you do, you're just like, yeah, straight to the front. I'm going to push you, do that move where you hold down spacebar so that they bypass their attack and just move further. It's like no, I'm going to get you. It's going to take two or three turns, but you are going straight to the front. Yeah, it's um,
0: which which is interesting. It 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 does feel. As interchangeable as the units could feel in Unity of Command one, and I think in a lot of war games like this, definitely you know for as simple as this game can be, I definitely started being able to sort of pick out different units, right like everything I said about American units was true, but like American airborne units are a really good resource if you can keep them healthy right if you can if you can preserve their strength, they're really good uh and they're a real asset in that in that hezro fighting if you can keep them from getting uh ripped up uh some of those you know UK armored units uh would, would do a similar thing and i don't think i ever developed that kind of identification with units in uh unity of command 1 because
1: they're the battlefield al-
0: disembodied heads yeah i i didn't <laughs> I, I like the busts I, let's talk about that this
2: is a very like Aesthetically, this is a very different game. Um, sounds. I thought that <laughs> contributes though to the feeling is that the, yeah. the the giant heads from the first game were just very abstract, whereas not only having them represented as infantry units, but being able to instantly tell the difference between okay, those are those are paratroops, those are US infantry, those are those are engineers, those are Indian troops, those are New Zealand troops. Like being able to see that at a glance, I thought added really a lot to that sense of, of individuality between all your units and being able to tell at a glance which was my favorite unit or, or who belonged to which HQ.
0: Troy, where, where are you at with, the, uh, with sort of the aesthetic shifts in this game?
1: I kind of miss, you know, the unique cartoony aesthetic. I, I, actually, I actually thought it was uh, quite good and quite welcoming. Um, this looks, in many ways, just like another war game. Uh but the interface, uh the UI, the information panels are so, so good. Uh so very clear what you can do and when you can do it. Now for some reason my game is a little bug where it doesn't have or I'm missing a feature where I don't get the um the orange line, the front line, the movement range. I just have like a cursor. What? I don't know what's going I don't know what's going on there. Uh but that's no one else is having this, so I haven't, I haven't complained about the support forum because I've got better things to do And their game, game just came, I came out, so they have better things to do. But, uh, other than that, which is on me, uh, the, the, the information panels, uh, and the in-game help and explanations are such a step up, um, from, uh, the, the first game, um, without being imposing, without being full of unnecessary detail, Uh, You can tell a lot of stuff at a glance um, without having to mouse over. You know what a certain thing is and what it's for. I think some of the icons with special powers are a little bit unclear. I'm not sure why faint looks like that, for example. I don't know how that's supposed to be.
0: Because you're pinning.
1: Oh, you're pinning. Is that what it is? Okay, yep,
0: you're pinning someone down. Yeah, no. It took it took me a long time to figure out what the hell that meant.
1: See, now now I feel like those kids who don't know what the save icon is supposed to be.
0: Well, suppression. <laughs> suppression is like to me. It looks like a brain floating. Yeah. Like, it look. It looks like it looks like a brain cloud, uh, floating on the button. I don't know what is that. Is it a gun firing like smoke?
1: I, I see, this is the thing. I, I mean, I, I don't always know what the icons mean, but they're distinct from each other. And once yes. you know what they mean, you will not confuse them and you will know which is which. Uh, so I'm a really big fan of the UX in general. Um, and because there are more units on the map, I think the big heads would kind of get in the way. Uh, the maps are generally larger. They're really dealing with a lot more units than a Unity of Command One, uh, on your average map, except for some of the giant Unity of Command One scenarios. Uh, so I, 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 it does. The units themselves don't look that much different than you would of another stylized 3D war game. I don't think the art is all that unique or distinctive. Uh, but the maps are really nice, and the UX is outstanding.
0: Yeah, I um, I think for me, I think for pure readability in terms of what the state of play is, I think Unity Command one still leads on that category. On the other hand, the terrain variety is much simpler in that game. Unity of command 1 doesn't have to worry about communicating like valley farm fields and roads between alpine mountains in Italy. Like that's not a that that is not a tile set or or, or a sequence that unity of command 1 has to worry about. So I think in some ways again the shift in setting required a slightly more literal representation that they're going for in unity of command two uh but i did find things like where are the front lines uh you know where the where is the enemy supply coming from i found that stuff all a little bit trickier to read uh and that's not it's still pretty clear once you hit the supply button you can still very easily see uh where everything is but Unity of Command 1, I found that stuff very just intuitive to tell at a glance without using any of the different map modes. Unity of Command 2, I sometimes find myself needing a little more assistance at unpacking what exactly I'm looking at, what exactly the sort of critical uh, lines of communication are on a map. Um, That being said, I I, I do think the the game looks really, really nice. Being able to... Spin the map around and look at, you know, go from looking at Overlord from, uh, the German side of the map and, and, and then sort of being behind the allied lines and looking at the same situation from there and how seamless that is. That's pretty cool. I don't know if it, if it necessarily adds a ton to the, the insights you're, you're going to glean into the situation, but having that option to sort of tweak it, uh, to your satisfaction to have the right, like, look, uh, look at the battle. Uh, is pretty cool and it is it is just undeniably a very pretty looking game let's see so as as far as um, you know unity of command one was very easy to say ah oh, that's an that's an intro level war game that's anyone can pick up and play that it's very straightforward is the same true of unity of command two because i think to us like a lot of what we outlined here uh, makes a lot of intuitive sense if you've played a fair number of war games, um, but I am curious. You know, a lot of what we've talked about here involves a lot of thinking about war gamer type stuff, preparing positions, feint attacks, suppression. Uh, is this an int- an introductory war game? The way its predecessor was.
1: Well, USA 1 well, was an introductory war game, and that it was easy to pick up and learn, but it's also very hard to win. Uh I mean, because you, the number of tools at your disposal weren't especially strong, uh, once you got past the first two or three scenarios, people would run into a brick wall. This would be okay because it would force them to learn a little more subtlety in their movements, and that's okay. But It was very easy to pick up. I don't think this one has a lot of barriers either. I don't think that, you know what a faint is what suppressing fire is are exactly secret code words uh, among the wargaming community um, and they aren't they aren't really special things you need to right click on and then select a whole bunch of options it is a button you push and say, okay, instead of attacking, this guy is going to do this. And all you need to know is this will weaken the enemy for the next person. And that's a very simple thing to learn, a very simple lesson to understand. You're giving up an attack now to weaken it for the next attack by the next unit. Um, and once you've figured that out, it's not that hard to work through. Uh, the tutorial isn't great. Yeah, that's,
2: that's, that's what I was going to say. I was, I was going to say it isn't, it is very much an entry level war game. Yeah. If not for the fact that the game itself unnecessarily obscures or yeah. miscommunicates a lot of its fundamental tenets. It took me a very long time through the Italian campaign before I worked out how to, how adding the extra like artillery or, or engineers to my units worked how exchanging things between units worked, um, the difference between all the special attacks, because like you guys already mentioned, the icons are not great. Um, and then it's way of explaining that is not great. Um, the tutorial seems to really wanna show me how the camera works and how combat works. And then a lot of the sort of more nitty gritty stuff, it just completely leaves up to tool tips, which is fine. But I think if we're talking about it as an entry level war game, if it's someone that that I am friends with, but that does not not necessarily play these kind of games all the time, I think that's a not insignificant barrier to entry for them. Because I think it's, it's a kind of situation where they'd be like, well, I don't know how any of this works. The game's told me half of it. I'm having to work out the rest. And like, if I had 10 minutes with them, I could easily explain, look, you just use these to weaken them and then move on. Supply, you just hold down that key, it works. But yeah, I think the game could have done a lot better job communicating it's finer points.
1: There is a fifty-page there is a fifty-page man, 50 manual available on Steam, uh, but like a lot of war game manuals, it tends to have too many charts. Uh, <laughs> and, uh, here's what the bonus you would get for an attack and or defense, etc., etc. Stuff that you don't really necessarily need to know when you're just trying to learn about how something works. Uh, I don't need to know all the step loss counts because I'm not an accountant here. I'm a general. Um, so, but it does go through some of these things in a little bit more detail with a few illustrations. Um, tutorials and war games and strategy games are, as I should know, uh, from my professional, uh, career are notoriously difficult, uh, to do well. Um, that we keep, keep trying. This is, I, I do think this is an approachable war game and I think it is, uh, more clever, than Unity of Command one. I think it is, it is immediately I think more, uh, more challenging, but also I think it offers many new surprises. Quicker out of the quicker out of the gate than the first one does. Um, I don't think you need to play Unity of Command one to play Unity of Command two. I think it might help to understand how two by two thinks about supply. Just in that very general sense, with the think of you know supply range and extending supply range that way you don't have to worry too much about how to figure that out in the game. you are trying to learn all these other things when you're just trying to try to learn supply and headquarters and all of these other things that's like three stuff, three big uh, concepts where unity of command one really just has, has supply is the big idea, so if you understand that, which you will understand very very quickly, in unity of command one. Then Unio Command Two is going to be a breeze, uh, I think. I don't think it's yeah. It, the tutorial's not great, but it, it isn't so hard that you can't fumble your way through how. No, I think I
2: think having the simple things like the the kill loss predictions yeah. and the supply line movement being able to brought up with a mouse key, I think that well, a mouse key, a, a keyboard press that really gets you past most of it.
1: Yeah, the well, the, 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 the 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 predictor the predicted result of an encounter, I mean, that's just a great thing. And that's, you know, I'm glad more games are doing that. you adding some certainty. I like some certainty. But right where
2: it is too, how it's right there on the unit, yeah. on the map, big text, nice and clear. It's like, yep, all right, let's do this or let's not. It's not something I'm having to sort of find in the corner of the screen or, and, 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 or and leave it up let, to guessing.
1: It, and it lets you know which points you need to take down first. You know, if it's if it's, a, it's going to be a six zero result, nobody's going to break through that unless I try some special attacks. And that encourages you uh, to learn all of the new things.
0: I think and this is a totally different topic, but as, as we talk through this, and, and Troy, you talking about tutorials, I think there's also a tension between once a game has both – there's a level of approachability or, 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 or complexity uh, or conceptual complexity of the board game, that, that a game has – and that will sort of determine how we approach it, how, how clear is it out of the gate. Unity of Command 1 and to a somewhat lesser extent 2 are very good at even just messing around, like if there was no help text whatsoever, mm-hmm. you'd be able to grope your way forward to a pretty decent understanding of the game and begin having fun. Um, <clears throat> once you like fold tooltips on top of that, like... You're getting really far along the road to comprehension, but at that point, once you have got like a pretty approachable game and good tooltips, what is the role of a manual? Because if a manual, because you still need one, there are still things in this game where I'm like, man, I wish somewhere front and center there had been a primer on supply hubs and trucks, and then supply percentages. Like, I really wish somewhere in this game it sort of did a full stop, like yo, here's what you need to know about establishing supply hubs and and moving them around and how this is going to come up in different ways through the campaign. But that's stuff that I think is sort of maybe more left to the manual. But I think there's there's a problem in the way games teach themselves that eventually you have so many different ways of the game is designed to sort of allow players to figure it out and teach themselves – Tooltips are there to provide answers to easy questions that might arise as a player looks at it. And then the manual is there to explain how the game really works. But the better or the more comprehensible any one of those avenues becomes, the less useful to players the other avenues become is kind of... You know what I mean? I feel like there's this tension between... If your tool tips are really good, it actually becomes much harder to get somebody to then refer to the manual to see yeah. what is actually happening under, the, sur- I under didn't, the surface here. I
2: didn't know there was a manual till Troy mentioned one, so that's... Those are the proof of what you were just talking <laughs> about. Yeah.
0: I, uh, I I think that's I, I think that is one of the real challenges of strategy game design, is that a lot of what we talk about ultimately... The clearest documentation of it is only going to be found in a manual, but you can get really far on a 70 to 80% comprehension of it, and at that point, it's really hard to get someone to check the manual to make sure they know what they think they know. Um, and I think that's something that strategy games struggle with, and uh, it is a struggle that has been exacerbated by the rise of good tooltips. Even as tooltips have solved a great many problems about how games teach themselves, um, they 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 they're also another torpedo fired into the listing hole of video game manuals. Um. Yeah, I mean, uh, but in terms of this being approachable, I think. For me, this is still I think this is a game that I can easily recommend to anyone who has some familiarity with uh you know, war games of any kind. But I was talking about this on on Waypoint with Austin, who is a pretty serious tactics gamer, right? Like, uh, like Austin plays a ton of tactics games, but he tends to stay away from things like this because they don't make that sort of intuitive sense to him necessarily that they make to us. And a big part of that is because, you know, if you really think about how much about like, you know, the version of the Western theater that you're going to see in this game makes a lot of sense because you're at least somewhat familiar with these campaigns and you're at least somewhat familiar with like the actual way that armies were supposed to fight in this period both because you've read some books on it and because you've played a bunch of other games that sort of play in the sandbox um if you're coming to it from outside the genre i think this is i think this could be a lot more opaque than we think it is
2: uh which is funny because i think I think one of the parts of this game where you attach the the auxiliary units to your main units, to me felt a lot. It felt very Fire Emblem-y. It felt like the loot and the equipment that you have in Fire Emblem. Like, oh, I'm equipping this ring and this sword and I've got this spell and that's going to change my standard sort of swordplay tactic into something that's got magic and range or whatever. I felt like it was doing that in this space. And so the, the irony there is that, hey, someone that's super into Fire Emblem might actually enjoy parts of this game were it not for all the other stuff that may just put them to sleep or send them insane. So I thought that was um, like, there is something there for those people. It's just whether they want to put up with everything else or learn everything yeah. else around that to get to it.
1: Yeah. I mean, if you don't know a lot about World War II, you're not going to be looking to play this game anyway. <laughs> but if you're somebody who has some interest in the campaigns and it's just has struggled to get into war games because they're very different space for people into the history, but can't get into the games. Then yeah, this is a great place to start. But I mean, if you're really interested in like sci-fi tactics, I'm not going to say, wow, you should play Normandy. Unless it's a mass effect Normandy. This is a different Normandy.
0: Yeah. And see, I think for me, I'm I'm always that person who's like, I am this close to just like buttonholing anybody I possibly can. And be like, oh, you know, well, you really liked Into the Breach. uh, You know, I bet you would love Unity of Command. <laughs> and I will believe that in my heart, like, to my, you know, to my soul, I will believe that is a true statement that makes some kind of sense. And then the minute I see someone who, like, loves Into the Breach start picking this up and, like, bouncing off of it, I'll realize, like, oh, damn, you really kind of need to know that Anzio is a shit show, huh? Wow. <laughs> This is boy Italy's <laughs> really tough if you don't know what the Italian campaign was like. Yeah, um, but nevertheless, I think w- where I'm at is, uh, I thought I love this game, y'all. Like I like I was skeptical of how it changed the formula from Unity of Command One, um, and at this point, I just compl- like I am
2: completely thrilled yeah. with how this is how this has panned out. Hey, I- yeah, I, I don't remember the last time I played a game like this where the, the beat-to-beat moments were just continually so interesting. Just ev- everything I'm doing all the time is challenging and satisfying and interesting um, on a click-by-click basis. I'm not sort of putting up with things as for the sake of campaign progression or just because I'm into history and like this theatre of the war or whatever. I'm just finding that every single time I'm going into combat here, it's it's interesting and it's different and it's elastic and it's testing me and i can't remember the last time a game was able to get my attention so strongly for just so consistently with every single thing i'm doing in the game it's crazy i mean
1: C- creative assemblies uh, total war three kingdoms is still my strategy game of the year but this is close this is like a really really good uh well done war game and i mean it shows that unity of command one wasn't a fluke that two by two really understands how to make a good war game, and I'm really really thrilled uh for the team there
0: well that will uh that will do it for this week, unlike Troy. I draw a hard line in my head between strategy games and war games, and so I can love both my three kingdoms and my western theater children equally Uh, I think they're both games of the year, and what a good year it has been. Uh, We'll be back next week with more strategy discussion. Uh, This episode was produced by Keith Carberry. Uh, Three Moves Ahead is hosted on the Idle Thumbs Network. You can learn more about the show and discuss this episode with our community at threemovesahead.net or follow us on Twitter at twitter.com slash 3MA. Finally, Three Moves Ahead is supported by listeners just like you on Patreon. You can learn more at patreon.com slash 3MA. Which also has further information about our super secret Discord server, where we occasionally talk about strategy games and gaslight ourselves about the unity of Command 2 AI. Uh, anyway, we'll be back next week with another episode of Thrillings Ahead. Until then, for Troy, for Luke, this is Rob Zachney saying goodnight.